We've been in a five-part series over the course of this weekend thinking about life with God, especially what Jesus has to say about that in this very um, profound and packed section of God's Word in John's Gospel. So we're going to finish that series, having walked through where life with God begins and originates with Jesus, how to evaluate whether we have had it, as we thought about the transformation that comes through life with Jesus, now we are finishing where Jesus finishes in this conversation with his disciples, thinking about our destination, our destination. So I'm going to read again John 16, 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have been listening in on this conversation Jesus is having with his disciples as he prepares them for his departure. The conversation winds from the end of chapter 13 to here, where it ends. And the conversation has gone like this. Jesus said he was leaving to go to his father, and his disciples could not come. When he left, Jesus said he would send his Holy Spirit to lead them with his presence and his word. In coming days, the disciples will represent Jesus on earth through their obedience and their love, even though the world will hate and oppose their message. Through the Holy Spirit, the disciples will have joy as they live lives that bring glory to God. In chapter 13 and 14, Jesus' announcement that he was going raised a lot of questions with his disciples, as we thought about with his interaction with Philip on Friday night. But Jesus took time to teach them, and through his teaching, it seems that the disciples by this point have gained some clarity on what Jesus meant. But there is still ample room for growth. So we will conclude our short series where Jesus finishes. Reminding of the destination. Where Jesus is taking his people and how to go with him. We'll take this in three parts. First, Jesus brings us into life with the Father. Jesus brings us into life with the Father. Read again verse 25 through 28. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
This paragraph encapsulates all of Jesus' teachings since chapter 13. The future for Jesus' followers is bright. Jesus is going away to his father, and because he came, he is going to bring his people to his father as well. We have seen over and over again in this series that Jesus came and lived and died to bring us into life with God. He always intended to unite people into the loving relationship shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a theme that I would encourage you to go back over these passages and explore deeper and deeper. It will be rewarding for your Christian life. Jesus' departure would leave the disciples changed. They would soon understand what it means to have life with the Father, and they would fully live in that reality. When they thought about Jesus' teaching, the truth would one day finally be plain to them. When they prayed, they would know that they were talking directly to God the Father and that he was listening in love. If you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you are a member of this church, I want to encourage you in the same thing. Be asking God to lead you to do what he wants to do with you. Look at what Jesus wants for us. Love from the Father. Love to the Father. Love with the Father. Jesus came to bring us into that. But there is a condition. You must love And believe in Jesus to receive life with God. Verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. And yet there's really no other qualification than that. If you come through Jesus, no matter your age, no matter your station, no matter your job, no matter your possessions, no matter your past, no matter your present, God in Christ will love you this is a universal statement for all God's people who have come through Christ for all the time this is the world that Jesus opened a door unlocked to a reality previously shut off to us perhaps you've grown up hearing about Jesus a lot and you would say you believe that Jesus is the son of God But this description of life with God Jesus has been teaching, perhaps this rings hollow to you. Perhaps you were led to think that knowledge about Jesus is all you need for life with Jesus. Jesus challenges that notion and demands that you go further in. Belief in Jesus is more akin to surrender, reliance, trust, dependence than it is to comprehension, rationality, logic, and mental knowledge. Certainly you must know who Jesus is, but Jesus encourages us not to just know about him, but to know him, to love him, to live for him, to know and receive his care for you. Jesus initiates that relationship with us this morning. To be one with him. 
to begin with him for the first time maybe for you or if you've already begun to take that relationship with him even further and deeper this is what jesus saved you for the christian life begins at salvation and grows as we grow to know the father who sent his son to save us we were like the orphan child left for dead on the streets who a king found dead in the gutter he picked us up he brought us to his castle there he cared for us and healed us and as he brought us to a place of living and thriving he explained to us that when he went out walking that day he found us he had gone looking to find someone to bring into his family from that day forward we would have full access to him he would feed and clothe us he would provide for us he would give us a prince and princess's inheritance in his kingdom he would share it all with us christian you're a child of the king if we have a if we have a father and a king who showed us such love to pick us up when we were dead and orphaned how much more love have we yet to experience from such a father You do not need to ever question God's love for you if you know him. But you can always ask to know more of his love for you. I say it again because Jesus keeps talking about it. Prayer is how we grow to know the Father's love for us. If you're asking God to give you what you need and he does, you will know more about his love for you. If you are talking to God and asking for strength to endure trial and he gives it, you know what his love is like. Jesus brings us into life with the Father. That is the point of verses 25 to 28 and of this whole conversation. But Jesus is talking to his disciples about a future reality. As he says, the hour is coming. And the rest of John 16 directs us in how we come into this life with God. So this is my second point. Jesus brings us into life with the Father. Point number two, do not try to go on your own. Verse 29 through 32. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples, when this conversation happens, are days, maybe weeks away from the reality that Jesus described in verse 25 to 28. After his death and his resurrection, he will have done everything needed to bring them into this full life. So in verses 29 to 32, we are catching the disciples at a very unique moment. From what they know of Jesus, they are in. They've believed everything about him that they've understood. And yet there are things still that they do not understand. They are, in, they are not anticipating how he's about to suffer and die. They are not comprehending that their belief in him will necessarily lead them through death as well. 
Notice how essential Jesus' work is to bring about a response of total repentance and belief. The disciples' faith is about to take a huge leap forward after Jesus finishes his work. Until Jesus dies, until he lives, until he gives his spirit to you, you will never truly know about him or know him. He must do that work in our hearts before our hearts will respond to him. The disciples on a journey of faith also show us that our faith grows and sometimes meets obstacles to belief in Jesus. The disciples believed in Jesus, but only so far as they knew him. In the areas they don't understand, their faith falters. Your life will be occasion after occasion to live with God through belief in Jesus. And in each occasion, there will be potential to choose something besides belief in him. And when we do, we take the Christian life out of Jesus' hands and into our own. And we transition from life as something we do with God to a life we primarily live for God on our own strength. This is a very important distinction. The disciples' example alerts us to those alternatives to belief in Jesus so that we might be aware of them, confess them, and ask God to help us choose to believe him instead. And there are especially two alternatives to belief in Jesus that reveal we're trying to go to the Father on our own here in the disciples' example. So I want to show those to you. Two alternatives to belief in Jesus that that reveal we're trying to go to the Father on our own. First, believing in our idea of Jesus. Believing in our idea of Jesus. Compare verse 25 and verse 29 to 30 to see what I'm getting at. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Jesus says the disciples will understand what he has for them in the future, referring to after his death, resurrection, and ascension. But the disciples insist that they get that already. They're sure they've already arrived, that the figures of speech make perfect sense to them. Not a shred of ignorance remains with these disciples. They know what they need to know about Jesus. They know, as they say, that he knows everything. And people don't even need to ask him questions because he already knows what they're thinking. Probably referring back to what happened in verse 19 of chapter 16. And if he knows everything and he knows what people are thinking, then they're confident. He's sent from God. Nothing more they need explained. Crystal clear. The disciples had a faith that rested on the observations they'd collected and put together about Jesus. At this point, they are not admitting they lack understanding or that there are still things Jesus needs to teach them. Did the disciples even think when they were talking? If Jesus, who knows all things, just said that they would understand his figures of speech later, but not yet, why did they act like they knew what he didn't by saying they understood him now? If Jesus knew all things, why didn't they trust what he was telling them? 
Well, you think about yourself. It gives you a lens into understanding the disciples. We are so much like them. We think knowledge is control. And so we don't like to not know. Knowledge, we think, is power. So we try to plan ahead so we can know what is going to happen. Let me tell you an illustration from my own life that gets to this. I remember doing an internship at a church as I explored the idea earlier on into going into pastoral ministry. I was one of six interns. The other five guys I interned with knew way more than me about the Bible. And I felt very insecure about it. So I resolved to know as much as them. I determined to read and study more, all in the name of preparing for ministry. I could not rest as long as I felt I had inadequate knowledge. I was a lot like Adam and Eve. They believed there was, far, there was more for them to know outside of the knowledge of life of, that God gave them. So they doubted God and they believed in their own idea that they could be gods themselves. We can never escape the reality of not knowing because we are not God. Knowing more is not an answer. Knowing God more is. I could not overcome my inadequacies as a pastor through more study. But God has and can always use my inadequacies to demonstrate his power in ways I could not have known. And God used Adam and Eve's unbelief to bring about a reality in which we now know God through Jesus. As a church, we want to believe in Jesus, not our idea of Jesus. Faith in Jesus is not a purely intellectual endeavor. We do not come to Jesus through the scientific method, implying all faculties and senses in order to render a distilled rationalization of what we think Jesus must be like. Why? Because God is a being who we don't understand unless he reveals himself to us. He cannot be discovered with space exploration or clever detective work. And he is not at all obligated to reveal all of himself to us at any moment or at all. So our gatherings and our life together must not be an attempt to fit Jesus into a compartment of our own making. Our gatherings and our life are an opportunity to watch Jesus blow away our compartments through his miraculous power. It is wonderful to be able to say, I know Jesus, and I pray you would be able to if you don't this morning. But we need more than that to have a solid foundation for our faith. We need to be able to say, Jesus knows more than me, and Jesus knows me, and I will trust what he tells me and trust where he leads me. So church, as you gather on Wednesday, Ask God to build a culture here of humble disciplers and disciples, learners. You have not summarized all there is to know about Jesus in your statement of faith. Your doctrinal soundness is not a comprehensive portrayal of your experience of Jesus. 
there is always more of him to know about and to know. This trusting in an idea of Jesus gets exposed when what we believe is called to action in how we live with Jesus, which takes us to another alternative to belief in Jesus, my second one. Alternative to true belief in Jesus is believing in your plan for Jesus. Believing in your plan for Jesus. Look at verse 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. With that question, do you now believe, Jesus is gently poking at the foundation of their trust. As if to say, are you sure that structure will hold up? Even though the disciples believed that Jesus knew all things, Jesus knew that alone wouldn't carry them through what was about to happen. Soon, maybe even that same hour, Jesus will be arrested, tried, condemned, executed. He will be crucified, and his dead body will be put into a tomb. And when that goes down, none of the disciples will go with him. When Jesus is alone on the cross, none of the men who right here claim to believe in him are there. What happened to their faith? Well, those events surprised the disciples, but not Jesus. Jesus intended all that to happen. This is what he and the Father planned in order to bring salvation to sinners. He even had told them it would happen just this way. But the disciples had a different plan for Jesus. They planned for him to be a conqueror, a hero, who would return Israel to national dominance over Rome. Their plan was to follow him into victory and exaltation. So when Jesus' plan diverged from their own, and when suffering and humiliation became the road to travel instead of the victor's parade, the disciples' belief in Jesus buckled. When we follow Jesus, there is death and resurrection in store. There will many, be many points where Jesus says to us, it is time for the old part of you to die. It is time to put away that thing your heart has been relying on instead of me. It is time to live according to a different plan, one that isn't about your success or your comfort. It is time to put to rest your strategies to get what you think you deserve. The cross where Jesus died is the cross where our old selves with our sin die too. In the footsteps of Jesus, our path must go through the cross. There is no shortcut around it. Though the disciples couldn't see it, and neither can we often, there is life through death. Jesus' plan is suffering now and then glory. Resurrection will come. And as you listen to the disciples later in Acts preaching about Jesus after this, you hear them talking all the time about that. Jesus' completion of the plan to die and rise becomes the bedrock of our faith. But to get there, we have to let go of our plans and give ourselves to live Jesus' plans for us. 
the overwhelming majority of things we fear or worry about stem from what's happening to our plan. We plan our retirement. We worry when the market dips. We plan our vacation. We worry that flights will get canceled. We plan to be married. We fear we'll live alone. We plan for a certain type of family. We anxiously control our kids to fit our plan. We don't plan to die. We're afraid to even think about it. What we do with our fears and worries reveal our faith, maybe even more than what we do with our joys and successes. The disciples readily claimed Jesus when he showed his ability to know all things. But they quickly scattered when he showed his plan to suffer all things. Probably the most accurate measure of our belief in Jesus is whether we stay near him when we're hurting and afraid. On a human level, the instinct to get distance from Jesus during our hardships makes some sense. When Jesus' plan leads to our trial, we wonder if the one with the plan knows us. We can say he knows all things when things are good, but when they are not, we ask, does Jesus know me? Does he love me? He might know everything, but can he do anything about what I'm in? He might know all, but does he see me? He might know, but how is this good for me? Well, there is more to Jesus than this. Jesus who came and suffered and died and rose again for our salvation. In his suffering, he loved us. In his plan to die, he did everything needed for our salvation. From the cross, he saw you. And he died for you. And through the cross, he had good in store for you. Our faith has a better place to rest than our plans for Jesus. Our faith grows when we trust Jesus' plans for us. You might have heard the story Jesus tells about the two builders, the wise one and the foolish one. One builds a house on a rock, one builds his house on the sand. Storm comes, and the house on the rock foundation stays standing, but the house on the sand falls apart. When we trust our own ideas of Jesus and our plans for Jesus, we build our houses on sand. These alternative beliefs will not and cannot comprehend what we need to endure the trials of life and the suffering of death. The foolish man did not plan for a storm. So he figured a foundation of sand would be just fine for a lifetime of sunny days on the beach. His error was that he didn't look for a solid foundation that was already there to rest his life on. He assumed any or no foundation would do. This strikes me as very relevant for our world today. The word belief is not used as a foundation word. It is more like decorations you put inside your house. One's tastes are for this set of self-oriented values. Another's preference is to believe there is no God at all. And these beliefs can change as easily as you could change your curtains. 
often in line with the way the culture's belief fads are changing. If there is any foundational belief commonly held in our world, it is that the foundation doesn't really matter. But it does. Curtains will not hold up your house when a flood comes. Ideas we've come up with about who we think Jesus should be will wash away with the heavy rains of life. The house will not stay standing through an unexpected shift of circumstances you didn't see coming if the house is built on your plans. We have an opportunity this morning to re-examine the foundation we are building our lives on. To jump up and down on the ground of our ideas and plans for our life and see if they can actually hold the weight we're expecting them to hold. And we get to hear the truth about Jesus, not our ideas about Jesus. And we get to discover Jesus' plans for us. And in light of what he has to say, we should build our lives on him. This leads us to our last point. If Jesus brings us to life with the Father, do not try to go to the Father on your own, but thirdly, let Jesus take you with him. Verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I am so glad to know that Jesus has a category for people whose faith is not strong when it needs to be. He tells the disciples they're going to bail on him, and then in the next sentence, he says he's still going to be for them what he always planned to be for them, their refuge and their redeemer. Jesus never expected his disciples would have it all put together by the time it really counted. Jesus wasn't coming to die for a bunch of healthy, well-balanced, strong-backboned, basically sinless disciples. As if the cross is just a symbol for us to dust ourselves off and try better next time. No, he was coming to die and rise to heal the sin-sick, restore the battered, give strength to walk to the people crippled by doubt, and to dress in righteousness those who were naked in guilt and shame. The cross of Jesus is an invitation. There, the Son of God, sent from a loving Father, had his entire person spread out to endure all your sin, and in so doing, spreads out his arms to welcome anyone who would lay their sins on him. On the cross, the Savior of the world stepped in between you and me and a holy God and took God's wrath against our rebellion and gave us an offer of peace if we will stop our fighting him and follow him. When the disciples were fleeing, scared, and faithless, they didn't know enough about Jesus to run to him. But Jesus is about to show them. Isn't it strange that in Jesus' hour to die, his disciples run away and hide in their homes from the one who knows all things? But even before that happened, Jesus told them, when this is all done, you will not hide from me. You will hide in me. There is a kind of belief that goes to Jesus in all things, even in the worst things. 
kind of house that rests squarely on the rock that is Christ. The person who has found peace with God in Jesus Christ now has this life in front of them. Your future is with the Father. Your life with him has already begun. Soon the disciples will stand beside the resurrected Jesus and marvel at how they saw him die. Yet here he is, talking to them after his resurrection. And then he'll leave them and go to the Father. His plan for them will then be that they stay on earth to keep telling the world about him and then one day to come and take them home in resurrection life. Jesus is also aware that between us and eternal life, there will be a hard, rocky, and stormy journey through the world. This land we trudge through is powerful. It has the ability to bring burdens sorrows, hurts, pains, persecutions. Do you feel your heart groan when Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation? Many of us, like denying Peter, probably felt, will say, I don't even have to get into the world. I have this flesh I have these desires. I have my own fickle faith to contend with, let alone what's out there. I have to live with the awareness that that so often when the world and sin and the devil rise up, I cower in fear and I run from the cross and his call to follow me. Don't we so often wonder if we'll be overcome or worry we might already have been overcome? Can you feel your heart lift when Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. The war of our hearts and the warring of this world comes to an end when we hide in Jesus who is our peace. There is peace for us and his name is Jesus. The world is a hard rocky and stormy place we must journey through but jesus is our guide who knows every step jesus was never alone and he will not leave us alone he is our champion who has already claimed victory over any enemy we encounter our loving father sent jesus our shepherd to carry us on his shoulders back to heaven i know the world is rough And the past seems long at times. But I also know Jesus has us. Jesus carries us. He protects us. You can rest yourself on him. You can rest in him. That's what belief is. Resting on and resting in. To live this is some wonderful combination of surrender, reliance, Dependence and trust on Jesus. We are built on the rock. We are safe in the rock. Because he came, we know about him. But because he died and rose, we know him. Jesus is bringing us into life with the Father. Let him take you there. Let's pray.